Hey everyone, welcome to the first of our dark episodes. Now, dark doesn't necessarily mean subject matter. Uh, dark as in the show isn't running normal episode this week, so technically we're dark. These are a lot more informal. There's no script. Uh, they can be a collection of things that were interesting, but I didn't have a way to fit them into a previous episode. Um, there might be uh, some corrections that need to be talked about, uh, mistakes I've made, Lord knows. So they could really cover the bases. In addition, hopefully in the future, we'll have some guests who can sit in on the other side of the table and talk about a specific myth or a topic. We might do book and movie and television and music discussions. Um, again, all centered around mythology and the subject at hand. And like I said, these are just part of the conversation, and they're a little bit more conversational and informal. Blue jeans allowed. So dim the lights, pour a drink if that's your speed, light a candle if that's the way you roll, and, and let's talk a little bit. Okay? All right. Let's get started. Now shall I tell of things that change, new being out of old. Since you, O oh gods, created mutable arts and gifts, give me the voice to tell the shifting story of the world. Everybody comfortable? Then let's begin. This week I thought we could kick things off by talking about a message that came in through Facebook. It was a comment on one of our posts, and... It was simple, straightforward, straight to the point, um, not from a follower of the page, but somebody who came in and made a comment and then left. And this was their comment. There is only one God. Okay. I have to admit, I had a knee-jerk reaction. I knew exactly who this person was, and I don't mean I know them personally. I mean, I knew them. I've known them my whole life. I grew up with them, and I know what they think about most things. I know where they're coming from. I know what bothers them. I know who they voted for in the last three presidential elections, and then I stopped, and I caught myself and realized I was basically, theologically profiling. You know, take a step back. Let's look at the comment. Let's look at it on its own merits. There is only one God. What does this tell us at its essence? Well, first of all, just historically and culturally speaking, it's demonstrably false. Uh, for as long as we've had recorded history, there have been plenty of gods all around the world, different cultures, different religions, different mythologies and theologies and churches and synagogues and temples and practices. But I'm also not being disingenuous. I know that's not what the person meant. They weren't speaking historically. They were asserting their theological point of view. There is only one God. 
which I think pretty clearly puts them in a monotheistic camp. No relation. What do we know about monotheism? There are plenty of monotheist belief systems out there. Um, The three that come to mind are kind of the modern three pillars of monotheism. We have Judaism, we have Christianity, and we have Islam. So, safe to assume probably that this person lives under one of those banners. Now, I don't know which one. I could stalk them on Facebook and try and track them down and see if I can glean it from it. But it doesn't really matter. Um, I personally am not monotheistic. Um, and I don't have a problem necessarily with individual people who are. I have certain issues with monotheism. Um, I think it's, as a, as a belief system, it tends to be, and I'm painting with a very big brush here, I know. And I apologize. But in my experience, it tends to be competitive. Almost as a point of self-preservation. It has to be competitive. And in a lot of cases, aggressively so. There is only one God. My God is the unfinished part of that statement. And it's a competitive assertion. My God is the one God, not yours. And I think historically, there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that monotheism has a tendency to do one of two things, to cultures that are not in alignment with their monotheistic belief. They either force some kind of assimilation or annihilation. They either absorb a culture and take different pieces of it to add on to their monotheism, to make it more appealing to the indigenous culture that they are taking over, or they crush it under their boot heel. And honestly, sometimes they do both. And that's just the way it kind of plays out, or at least the way it has played out in history in these three primary monotheistic belief systems that I'm talking about. And just as a side note, I hate the word belief systems, but I can't stop myself from saying it. Um, I don't like it. It's, it's, it's techie in a way. Um, it's, it's impersonal. Um, you know, I, I just downloaded an update to my belief system, and now I can't print. Uh, you know, I need to get a patch for my belief system. My my email won't load. Oh, man, my belief system got infected with a virus, and now I can't do anything. I'm going to have to reboot and reinstall my belief system from a clean copy. I, I, actually, that kind of makes a little bit more sense. At any rate, monotheism. There is only one God. Okay, let's take a look at the three, at least, that I've mentioned so far. Judaism, for instance, is a very well-established, 
monotheistic belief system in our world today. And like any other uh, theology, it has its pros and its cons. There are good things and there are bad things. I'm not here to judge necessarily. I'm just talking about my opinions and my perceptions. I'm not dismissing anyone else's beliefs any more than I would want someone to dismiss mine. We all get to God in different ways, and I'm okay with that. But I like to look at things and unpack things a little bit and analyze them a little bit. So let's take a look at Judaism. Now, kind of to my competitive point, you can look at the history of Judaism, in, I guess specifically in the Old Testament, and on one level, it's the history of a tribe going around the region and either assimilating or annihilating all the competing cultures that it comes in contact with. That's a very, I admit, charged and oversimplified take on the history of the Israelites in the Old Testament. But that's at least one facet of it. Um, obviously, there's much more to it. And from a monotheistic point of view, Judaism has that at its core. They worship the one true God. And my knowledge of Judaism is fairly limited. Um, I wasn't well-educated in that theology when I was younger, um, but we, we touched on a lot of the Old Testament. And for instance, I understand the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, and you will have no other gods before me. Monotheistic. A a actually, not really. Um, if I'm being kind of a semantic weasel, and I want to break that down a little bit, I can't go back to the original Hebrew. I don't speak or read Hebrew. But just looking at how it's been translated over any number of millennia, I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. That isn't necessarily monotheistic. It's exclusionary. It's competitive. Some people might suggest it's a little bit insecure. Um, that's a theory I've always had about competition in general, or really very, very competitive people. Um, my observation is that people who are super competitive are compensating for staggering, staggering self-image or uh, inferiority issues. Now, I don't mean to put that on God in the Old Testament. Maybe the writers bringing a little bit of their baggage to the table. I don't know. I'm speculating like a total jerk. But I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. What's interesting to me about that, just from a uh, semantic point of view, is it, it actually acknowledges that there are other gods. It doesn't say, I'm the only God. It doesn't say, all those other gods are fake. It says, you will have no other gods. It's demanding a commitment, which is perfectly fine. 
You are my people. I have called you out. Fair enough. Now, what's interesting to me with the little bit I do know about Judaism and how they talk about their God in the Old Testament is that there are some interesting naming conventions when they talk about God. For instance, in the book of Genesis, right at the beginning, in fact, in the beginning is the first sentence, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What's interesting there is, as I understand it, and I could be wrong, but as I understand it, the word there that's used when it says God is the word Elohim. That's the name of God in the first verse, in the first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Now, here's what's interesting. The name Elohim is actually plural. It's not singular. And you see some residue of that when God speaks and says, let us make man in our image. Now, when I was a kid going through school, they said that that was more of a royal we, kind of the way a king says we and us instead of I. But the underlying Hebrew, as I understand it, the actual word is plural. And according to some things I've read, it's also feminine, which makes sense from a creative point of view. But traditionally, God is usually represented as male. It's a fairly patriarchal belief system, at least in its history. And the first time that they mention their God, they use a plural noun. And that's interesting. It gets more interesting as you move through specific episodes of the Bible, and, and specifically the Old Testament, where the name of God is mentioned again. For instance, when God calls out Abraham to leave his tribe, his culture, and go out and essentially become the father of the Israelites. The God that calls Abraham out is not Elohim. It has a different name. The name that calls to Abraham is Al Shaddai, which actually means mighty. Um, some things I've read say that, uh, you know, kind of a more poetic uh, translation of it is uh, God of Battles, but I haven't seen that verified anywhere else. What I have seen is that some people uh, say that the name Al Shaddai suggests a mountain or perhaps euphemistically, a breast. And what it implies is, I am the one who nourishes. Again, a feminine characteristic. So kind of interesting for a monotheistic religion. And then we get to Moses. Most people have a vague understanding of the story of Moses if they bumped into it at all. Um, you might have seen a movie or a cartoon. Moses is the guy who parts the sea. 
Moses is the guy who carries the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. Um, The God that reaches out to Moses is a little bit harder to pin down in terms of name. When Moses first encounters that God, it's at the burning bush. He's out in the desert, he's committed a murder in Egypt, and he's fled. And out in the desert, in the wilderness, he sees a bush that is burning but not consumed, and a voice speaks out of the fire and basically says to Moses, you are going to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land that I have prepared for you. Fantastic. Moses says, who are you? Who should I tell them you are? And what I've read varies a little bit based on translation, but essentially God speaks and says, I am that I am, or I am he that is, or I am self-evident. What's interesting about that is, is we're starting to use a couple of different names as the story of Moses progresses. We have Jehovah, and that, as I understand it, is where we get I am that I am, I am he that is. The other name that is used to talk about God is Adonai, which is also plural, but it's a little bit more general. And really straightforward translation of it is, my lords, maybe my gods. Again, monotheism. Now, I I just want to take a step back and reiterate, I don't have a problem with monotheism. It's not my particular favorite flavor of mythology, but I've got no quarrel with it in the abstract. Um, There's good and there's bad, like I said. But the usage of plurality to talk about your God when you make monotheistic claims seems a little bit of a disconnect to me. And then there's Islam, which essentially they are an offshoot of Judaism. They became a separate religion. I'm totally simplifying this, but what we end up with are these two offshoots where they they share a common God, where you've got a monotheistic religion, but in Hebrew, at least, the words are still plural and and. These might just be figures of speech. These might just be expressions. Fine. There's plenty of that in all sorts of religions and mythologies around the world. But it's interesting to me to kind of think about this. Now, obviously, for Islam, they assert the same thing that was asserted on the show's Facebook page. There is only one God, and Muhammad is his prophet. And that's a fairly distinctive statement. Now, our third pillar of monotheism, Christianity, again, it's an offshoot of Judaism. It, it, It basically started as a little cult. And in Christianity, they recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. God is God, God the Father. And then we have Jesus, the Son of God, who is also God. And then we have another entity called the Holy Spirit. 
who is some kind of emanation or indwelling power that comes from God. Now, Christianity is monotheistic. The Christians that I've known throughout my life believe in one God, but they have a very interesting tension between their uh, theology and their mythology and also their practice. On a theological point of view, they say there is only one God. They also have to reconcile that with their mythology. They have this Savior who was a son of God. Now, in Greek and Roman mythology, it's fairly common for a God to come down, mate with a mortal, and produce offspring. And that's how we get demigods like Heracles. But that isn't how Christianity works. In Christian theology, Jesus is as much God as God is. But there's an, a strange logistical separation between them. God stays God, stays outside of our reality, our world, but Jesus is incarnated on earth to become a savior, holy God, but also holy man, which is a little bit of an odd tension for monotheism, particularly if you, like I did for 35 years, grow up in a church and in Christian schools where when people pray, they don't just pray to one God. They pray to three different beings. I've heard people pray to God the Father. I've heard people pray to Jesus Christ. I've heard people pray to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes moving in between in one prayer, they will address one aspect of God and then another, and they literally treat them as separate entities even though in their theology they believe in monotheism. Now, they, they reconcile this with a doctrine called the Trinity, which is not technically in the Bible, but it is the idea that God has three aspects. It's not an original idea to Christianity either. In mythologies, there's around the world, a triune god or goddess is very, very common three aspects of the same God, but each one is treated separately as its own individual God, much like the Christians do. However, those other mythologies that would worship a triune God, they would not consider themselves monotheistic, whereas Christians do. And I find this interesting. It's an interesting evolution because Christianity didn't spring up uh, 2,000 years ago, overnight, perfectly formed the way people believe it now. It was a process of slowly bringing in different ideas and different doctrines and rejecting others until it got to the point that we're at today, being monotheistic in theology and doctrine, but polytheistic to some degree in mythology and even in practice or ritual. Now, again, I'm not trying to pick any fights here. I'm not trying to convince somebody that they shouldn't believe in Christianity or Judaism or Islam. That's not my deal. I'm not interested in changing anyone's mind. I find these ideas interesting, and I find 
the way that belief forms over time and has little offshoots that become their own belief systems, I find it fascinating because I've seen it at work in my own life. 35 years ago, I believed something very different than what I believe now. 10 years ago, I believed something different than what I believe now. My belief and my faith have evolved over time. And like I said in one of the very first episodes of this show, I don't understand people who don't experience that kind of growth or evolution. Not that they slowly begin to agree with me, but that they don't ever put their roots down any deeper than the thin layer of topsoil that was spread when they were children. I'm not trying to invalidate anybody's religion. Quite the opposite. I think people should ask these questions and think about these things of their own religion. Uh, let, me, let me tell you about a guy named Pete Diamond. Pete Diamond was a theology professor at the college I went to. And his job, when he got there, his very first year, was to teach Old Testament theology to freshmen who were coming in. Now, it was a Christian college, a little liberal, but a Christian college. And on the first day of class, sitting there in a room with 30 other 18-year-olds who were away from home, most of them for the first time in their life, Pete Diamond, who was a gentle, soft-spoken, absolute wonderful man, he just emitted this vibe of kindness. Pete Diamond got up in front of class, and I'll never forget this. He said, well, I want you to forget everything you think you know about the Bible. I want you to forget everything you think you know about the Old Testament. I want you to forget everything you think you believe. Everything that you've been told, everything that you've been taught, is most likely wrong. We are going to go through the Old Testament in this course and give you an understanding of what's there so that you can have a firm foundation under your feet to support your faith. Now, I got to tell you, I wasn't a good student, but I sat up because no one had ever talked like this in all the years I'd gone to Christian schools. And what transpired over the semester was Dr. Diamond would come into class and he would point out interesting echoes, dare I say, ripples, of how the stories moved from one belief and culture to another. How the idea and story of the flood wasn't unique to the Bible. And the story of the flood that everybody was taught in Sunday school wasn't in the Bible. And then he looked at Adam and Eve and the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And he looked at how that story was constructed from a literary point of view. And he suggested that maybe 
there really wasn't a guy named Adam and a woman named Eve and a talking snake. Maybe it was an allegory or a parable because it's written in that style in the text. And people freaked out. I can remember people saying, but if that's not true, then I don't know what I believe anymore. Or they would say, but if there wasn't an Adam and an Eve, how can I be a Christian and believe in the Bible? Because they had grown up, most of them, in the church. And they'd gone to Sunday school and they'd been told the stories that they tell you in Sunday school. And they'd sat in church and they'd listened to the sermons. But nobody had ever dug into the theology and the history and what the Bible really said. And when you do that, you have to take a step back and come to terms with things like inconsistencies and stories and elements and characters that are pretty much plagiarized from other sacred texts from other religions in the region. That if you've put all of your faith into these stories that you were told as a child, when the stories turn out not to be what you thought, you don't have anywhere to go with that. Now, there was a small portion of us who loved every second of this. Not because we hated religion or we didn't want to be Christians anymore, but because He was teaching us how to think critically, how to analyze a text, how to research the origins of stories. And as I'm talking right now, it occurs to me that the beginnings of this show are back 25 years or more with me sitting in that class. Good old Dr. Diamond. And of course, they fired him after the first year. The president was swamped on Parents' Day. There were literally hundreds of parents lined up to give him a good talking to about this Dr. Diamond guy and what he was doing to their little boy or their little girl's head. Personally, I think it's awesome. I loved it, and I loved the way it taught me how to look at a text, any text, any story, and unpack it and think about it. And yes, admittedly, overanalyze. Guilty as charged. And I know Pete. I talked to him. I went and met with him. And I know what he wanted to do was he wanted to give people deeper soil so their roots could grow deeper. Pete was a Christian. He believed in what he was teaching. All of it. He wasn't in there to agitate and lead people away. Quite the opposite. He died a few years back. He had a brain tumor. It was a bad way to go. And it kind of breaks my heart because he was wonderful and kind. And he deserved better than he got. I hope to run into him again one day, either in my dreams or in the underworld. It's hard to tell the difference sometimes. They share a common border after all. Now, I realize 
that there might be or probably are people listening to this who disagree with everything I've said so far. I get that. And as strong as I can say it, I'm not trying to argue or persuade anybody to believe something different. Like I said, I think people should believe what they believe, but I think they should know why they believe it. I know why I believe what I believe. I think people owe it to themselves, and they owe it to their God, to do the same work. Otherwise, you know, they're just cooking someone else's recipe every day. It's fine, it's nourishing, and it'll be fine, but it becomes empty, ritual, and boring. And in some cases, people don't even cook anymore. They just go through the drive through They pick up food somebody else made. And it can be nourishing, but it's also very, very bad for you. Now, you can go through a continuum of people making food for you to making your own food, using their recipes, to experimenting a little bit in the kitchen and trying out things and creating your own. And honestly, any of those can be nourishing and satisfying. Some are better for you than others. That's kind of how I think about theology and and belief. I think we owe it to ourselves to try and cook for ourselves every once in a while. It's better for us. We learn more. And honestly, just from my opinion, it's so satisfying to cook for yourself. And I love cooking for other people. And I could go on about this show and how there's a dinner table that we all come to, but that would belabor this metaphor a lot more than I already have. Remember I told you that these episodes were unscripted? Here's how you can tell. He's babbling again. Now, I know that there are people who disagree with me. I know that there are people who are um, uh, followers of Judaism or Islam or Christianity, and if they're listening to this show, they disagree with everything I say. I get it. I got it. And I'm happy to have that conversation, to be honest with you. I'm not looking to persuade anybody. I'm not going to be persuaded myself. But I'm interested in the conversation. And to be truth, to be truth, to be honest, I'm also aware that there's a group of people who also don't believe in any of this. And we haven't really talked much about them yet. As strong as it is to make the statement that the person made on Facebook a couple of days ago, there is only one God. It's also a very strong statement to say there is no God. I'm talking, of course, about atheism. Now, atheism has become a lot more accepted and mainstream in the past, I'd say, 15 10, 15 years. I don't remember when I was young people being able or free to say, I don't believe in God and have it not be a little bit of a stigma. Now, I know that for a lot of people, it still is, but it's definitely more mainstream. It's definitely more accepted. That belief, that opinion is... I think, a lot more acceptable in our modern culture. We've become a little bit more 
inclusive. The table is bigger. Everyone's allowed to sit and talk. And I don't have any problem with atheism any more than I do monotheism or people believe what they believe. It's their belief, not mine. I don't take it personally. What I do take personally, though, is when somebody uses their belief to attack mine. And there are people in the movement that's led to the acceptance of atheism. There are people at the head of that movement, not all of them, but some, who are fairly antagonistic, um, pretty rude, pretty dismissive of anybody who believes in anything supernatural, metaphysical, or mythological. I've heard it said, if you believe in God, any God, you're unevolved, you're childish, you're holding humanity back. It's a very strong position to take. We've believed in God for as long as we've had a history. We've believed in God. Now, there have also been people for as long as we've had a history who don't believe in God. Now, the argument from the atheist side of it that I've heard is, well, but Christianity or religion in general, they are dismissive, they are rude, they attack others who don't believe like they believe. So we're just being as rude as they are, which is really kind of a playground argument. And it's ironic that people say, I'm childish. But the problem is that they're right. It's right to say that some atheists are rude and dismissive and kind of assholes. But it's also true to say that there are Christians or Jews or Muslims who are kind of assholes. You know, sometimes on the religious side, they're just assholes socially, terribly hurting with their words and with their actions. They even violent. Some of them use guns and bombs and airplanes to make their point. Now, on the atheist side, obviously that's not happening, but there's some assholes over there too. Here's my theory about this. There are good people. There are good people who are atheists. There are good people who are Christians. I don't think being a Christian makes somebody a good person. The theology doesn't make you a good person. In the same way that being an atheist doesn't make you a good person. There are Christians who believe things that I am diametrically opposed to, but they follow their beliefs. They, they feed the hungry. They care for the sick. They care for the elderly. They are active in their community, and they don't dismiss people that they don't agree with theologically. They follow the example of Christ, and they serve their community. Their faith doesn't make them good, but their faith waters the roots, and they grow. Now, the same is true for atheists, because atheists don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe that there's someone up there who's going to reward them for being good. Being good is, is just being good on its own merits for them, which is supremely noble. 
and deeply humane. So they do their good works. They run soup kitchens. They run hospitals. They run universities. They care for the sick. They feed the hungry. They take care of the environment and animals. Because for them, every moment, every opportunity to do good is precious in this life and fleeting because there won't be any more of it one day. They are good people, and their belief waters their roots. Now, on the flip side of it, there are assholes who are Christians. The way they treat women, the way they treat children, the way they treat homosexuality, minorities, the way they treat other religions, other cultures. Their religion doesn't make them that way but it does water their roots, same as the good guys. And it's true on the flip side for the atheists that I think are kind of jerky. Their belief system doesn't make them a jerk. They were already a jerk. But their beliefs water their roots. I hope I'm not coming across as an asshole. Again, I'm not challenging your beliefs. And if I were you, sitting on the other side of this babbling nonsense, I would say, okay, smart guy, what do you believe? And that's a fair question, because I haven't really come out and said that in any of the episodes so far. I've talked about what I used to believe. I've talked about how my beliefs have changed. You can make some assumptions, kind of like I was doing about the person on Facebook. You can make some assumptions about what I probably believe. But the best way that I know how to explain what I believe, specifically as it relates to this discussion of God, monotheism versus polytheism versus pantheism, the best way I know how to talk about my beliefs is to tell you a story. Close your eyes. Imagine a pond. The water is crystal clear. There are dragonflies that skim over the surface, cattails at the water's edge, waving in the breeze. On the shore, frogs croak. Fish swim in the cool shallows. There might even be ducks. And then along comes a kid, and he picks up a rock about the size of a grapefruit, and he heaves it into the center of the pond like a shot put. And there's an explosion, a splash. The frogs hop away, the ducks squawk and vanish. And the surface of the pond is a mass of ripples bouncing back and forth and waves washing up and over the shore and bouncing back across to the other side. And the ripples run into each other and make new ripples. And that's kind of how I view God. For me, All of the different gods, all of the different mythologies that have spread out through our entire history are the ripples moving back and forth, bumping into each other, interacting with each other, changing as they go. The writer Alan Moore talks about monotheism, and I don't know that I would go as far as he does, but what he has to say is interesting. 
have been looking at the kind of the history of magical thinking and where it starts to go wrong. And for my money, where it starts to go wrong is monotheism. I mean, if you look at the history of magic, you've got its origins in the caves. You've got its origins in shamanism, in animism, in a belief that everything around you, every tree, every rock, every animal, was inhabited by some sort of essence, some sort of spirit that could perhaps be communicated with. You would have had some central shaman or visionary who would have been responsible for channeling ideas that were useful to survival. By the time you reach the classical civilizations, you can see that this has formalized to a degree. The shaman was acting purely as an intermediary between the spirits and people. He was in his position in the village or community, I should imagine, very much like a spiritual plumber. You know, the people in the group would have had their own roles. The person who was best at hunting would have been a hunter. The person who was best at talking to the spirits, perhaps because he or she was a bit crazy, bit detached from normal material world, then they would have been the shaman. And they would not have been masters of a secret craft. They would have simply been dispensing their information throughout the community because it was believed to be helpful to the community. When you get the actual classical cultures emerging, this has been formalized so that you've now got pantheons of gods and each of those gods will have a priest cast that will act to a certain degree as intermediaries who will instruct you in the worship of that god. So the relationship between humans and their gods, which could be seen as the relationship between humans and their highest selves, that was still a very direct one. When Christianity comes in, when monotheism comes in, then all of a sudden you've got a priest caste moving between the worshipper and the object of worship. You've got a priest caste becoming a kind of spiritual middle management between humanity and the divine within itself that it is seeking. You no longer have a direct relationship with the Godhead. The priests don't really necessarily have a relationship with the Godhead. They've just got a book that tells you about some people who lived a long time ago who did have a direct relationship with the Godhead. And that's all right. You don't need to have miraculous visions. You don't need to have gods talking to you. In fact, if you do have any of that stuff, you're probably insane. You know, in the modern world, that stuff doesn't happen. The only people who are allowed to talk to gods, and in a very kind of one-sided way, are priests. Monotheism is, to me, a great simplification. I mean, the Kabbalah has a great multiplicity of gods, but at the very top of the Kabbalistic diagram, the Tree of Life, you have this one sphere that is absolute god. The monad something that is indivisible, you know. And all of the other gods, 
and indeed everything else in the universe, is a kind of emanation of that God. Now, that's fine. But it's when you suggest that there is only that one God at this kind of unreachable height above humanity, and there is nothing in between, you're limiting and simplifying the thing. I mean, I tend to think of paganism as a kind of... as an alphabet, as a language. It's like all of the gods are, are letters in that language. They express nuances, shades of sort of meaning or certain subtleties of ideas. Whereas monotheism, it tends to be just one vowel and it's just something like, ooh, it's this monkey sound. You can almost imagine the gods becoming frustrated, contemptuous, that with all this richness of spiritual concepts that are available, why reduce it to one plaintive single note that the utterer does not even understand? So that's Alan Moore. But the question is, if Alan Moore and others are right, that somewhere there is the monad, then in my little allegory, where is God? When I've had this conversation with people, some of them will say, God is the little boy coming in and and creating all of the ripples, all of the stories, all the emanations. Others will say that God is the rock being thrown into the pond. It, it's, the, it's the prime mover that, that starts it all off, the theological big bang, and it's solid. Unlike the ripples, which are mutable and changing, the rock is a solid thing. Those are both perfectly acceptable answers. I believe something different in my own little allegory. I believe that God is the water. We come to the pond and we need water and we scoop it up in our hands and it's good. Some people come to the pond and they need water and they've got a container. And when they scoop it up, the water takes the shape of their container and they say, look, this is the shape of water. Their theology shapes their God. But this is the thing about water. You can dump it out and it goes back to the source. It doesn't hold the shape. And if you try to make it hold the shape, if you freeze it, you end up with a very cold and brittle God. And also one that's pretty fragile. One wrong move, one drop, one little piece of information, and the whole thing shatters. But the good news is it melts and it goes back to the source. Now, there are some people who don't want a cold God. They want a hot God. They want a God that's going to burn others for their transgressions. And so they build a fire under their container and they get their God as hot as they can. But there's a danger there. That God will burn anything it touches. And in time... It turns to steam, goes back to the source, and all you have is an empty container. God is God. 
That's what I believe. And I believe that for whatever reason, we have a tendency to try and know God at the surface level through these little ripples that we observe, these stories that we tell each other, that we carry with us. They refresh us. They soothe us. Maybe we don't need them. Maybe we are children. Okay. But like I said, I choose to believe what I believe just as much as anyone else does. I don't like labels. I can't say what I believe. I can't say, well, this. I'm polytheistic, Hellenistic, paganistic. None of those things work. I don't like labels. It's been a long time since I've been able to apply a label to my own beliefs. Part of the reason why is because they're not chiseled in stone. They grow and they change and they flow over time, just like the pond. Like I said, 20 years ago, I was a Christian. 10 years ago, I don't know what I was. But now, I'm pretty solid in my beliefs now. My installation of my belief system is very stable. But I never forget how solid my footing felt 20 years ago or 30 years ago, where I believed almost the exact opposite of what I believe today. For me, that's part of the wonder. That's part of the joy of reading and studying and seeking the gods. We'll find our gods one way or another. When the person on Facebook made their comment and they said there is only one God, they were responding to the name of the show, Find Your Gods. The word gods triggered them. Of course it did. I didn't respond, but someone else did. And what they said was fairly straightforward. There is only one God. And the person replied, well, it sounds like you've found him then. Good for you. Sincerely, that's a great answer. Because I also believe that the gods are what we ascribe to them. I just finished the final episode in the series about Hades and Persephone, and there's a lot about Hades in it. And Hades is a god that's very misunderstood, in my opinion. There's a lot of terrible representations of Hades, mainly casting him as a terrible, evil, awful thing. And the truth of the matter is, I believe that if that's what you believe of a god, then that's the God you're going to get. Whether it's Hades or Jesus or Yahweh or Jehovah or Allah or anybody else, I would love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, the website, Twitter, find us. We're there. Next week, we'll be diving back in to the stories of 
Hades and Persephone, and finishing up that series. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. Now, before I go, I wanted to mention one other thing. The voice at the beginning of the episode wasn't our usual intro. That's a recording that was provided by a good friend of mine, Tanya Eby. She's an outstanding writer and a world-class award-winning voiceover artist. She has over 500 audiobooks to her name. You should check her out. She just wrote and published a new book, and you can find out more about her at Tanya Eby. That's Tanya, T-A-N-Y-A-E-B-Y dot com. I was really happy that she graciously volunteered to lend her voice to that little invocation. And over the coming weeks in our dark episodes, I'll probably share others. I got more than I could use. I think I got over 40 different recordings from people reading the invocation. Hey, if you want, send me one of your own. All right, that's enough for now. Thank you for listening. Be well. Take care of each other. And may your gods bless you. Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. So, now you know who to blame. The contents of this episode are copyright 2016, T.M. Camp, and may not be copied, distributed, transmitted, or otherwise reproduced in any format or medium without his express written permission. Violators will suffer terrible fates over long years as the slow curse of the gods takes root in their lives and poisons the very foundations of all they have tried to build. Join us online at findyourgods.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash findyourgods. We're also on Twitter at findyourgods. You can also find us on findyourgods.tumblr.com And we're even on Pinterest. Because, you know, why not?